I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Dilution Hunter-Raja, and I'm joined today by Chief Football Writer of the Independent, Miguel Delaney, and Senior Football Correspondent, Melissa Reddy. Now, the longest Premier League season in history is finally over. After what seems like an eternity, the 2019-2020 campaign is now in the books. Liverpool are champions after 30 years and the Champions League places are decide- well, have, been, have been decided after a race that went right down to Sunday's final day. Let's start, though, at the other end of the table where there are matters to be decided around relegation. Melissa, You've covered all three of the teams that have gone down at one point or another this season. And just as a refresher, that is Norwich City, Bournemouth and Watford. So, yeah, Melissa, from what you've seen of them, talk us through kind of how they ended up you know, being in the unfortunate positions that they're in. I think with Norwich, it was obvious from the opening day of the season that they were going to be very enterprising, probably too enterprising for a team of their quality level um, and especially that they were going to do so regardless of who they faced Um, and Liverpool taught them quite a a drastic lesson on the opening day even after losing Alisson to injury and you wondered whether Norwich were going to show any sort of um, offensive protection going forward if they would deviate from their methodology at all and they didn't. Um, and 21 points tells you it wasn't the right approach um, in a very intense Premier League with the top of the table being quite strong and ruthless in an offensive sense to punish teams that are so open. With Watford, they were clear. Nigel Pearson had steered them away from danger. And I think Watford just live for drama. They live for chaos. They love it. And so their their relegation, actually, I remember the ownership insisting that even though they do things a different way, which is, you know, sack a manager quite quickly uh, and quite often, that it worked for them. And it was hard to argue because it was actually working. And I remember making the point that it works until it just doesn't anymore. There's only so much you can play with chaos before it burns you. Um, And it's done it to them. With Bournemouth, they just left the fight too late. Um, You know, really good draw against Tottenham. They beat Leicester quite convincingly. They beat Everton on the final day of the season. But that just wasn't enough. Um, I, I felt that they got too comfortable in the Premier League. And once you even drop 10% in this division, especially when you're a team of their kind of resources, you feel it. And they did. Meeks, um, Watford looks certain for safety, as um, Melissa was just saying, uh, with Pearson's rival. Could you talk to us 
or talk through us how that particular relationship and subsequently Watford season um, soured seemingly so quickly. Well, it is amazing because it was Tuesday, wasn't it, where they basically went from being almost completely safe to doomed in the space of five hours. First by getting thrashed by City, having sacked um, Pearson at the weekend, then when Villa won uh, against Arsenal. Um, and I suppose, I mean, despite a lot of rumours, there's been no massive story that's come out about Pearson with Watford. I think it was just basically a bit of a personality clash between himself and the owners, as has happened before at Watford. And I, I mean, Pearson's obviously quite a distinctive character himself, but this still feels kind of separate to that. And it really, it's about how Watford do the distinctive way they run the club, which is, I mean, they uh, to a degree, I think they thought they'd game the system and were willing to take these drastic decisions that no one, no one else did. But as, as Melissa alluded to there, you, I mean, you, it is just, it does mean there's a potential perpetual chaos that's because there's just so many ructions. And, and it's hard to actually instill any sort of club identity at that point, either in terms of kind of the personnel or even how you play, because, especially when you jump. Because this, this, isn't a case, this isn't a case where it's one of those clubs where the head coach doesn't really matter as long as there's a certain profile, where like the director of football rules everything. Because the profile of coach was so different every single time. It's not like they, they fit. It's not like it was going from Brendan Rodgers to Gary Monk or anything like that. Um. And Pearson was difficult to what they had before, or different to what they had before. And yeah, it, do, it does just feel as if they've kind of, uh, it's petered out in that regard. Also, I think their, the recruitment in the last two years hadn't been maybe as distinctive as it had been before either. I mean, who would you take out of this team now? Sarah, is he the only one? Um, and Decore maybe, but I, I, although he didn't have a great season compared to kind of previous performances. Um, and it's just, a, it felt like a few different issues mounted up. At exactly the wrong time. Yeah, you mentioned identity there. Um, I feel like we've talked about this mode quite a lot in the last few weeks, and now it's confirmed that Bournemouth will go down, or are down, sorry. Um, we might as well talk about him again. Melissa, with Eddie Howe, uh, Bournemouth clearly did have an identity, and it's just kind of vanished into thin air, seemingly. Um, do you think him, you know, we've spoken about Bournemouth as a team, their issues, you know, plenty, I think, um, over the last month or so, but with regards to Eddie Howe, what do you think his next move will be? Having spoken to a lot of different people at the club in terms of the hierarchy, staff, players, they actually don't think he's the problem. They do, yes, believe that the messaging got stale uh, because it's been the same coaching staff for such a long period, but that ultimately the reason it got stale is because they kept a lot of players for too long past their sell-by dates. Um, and they didn't, when they tried to infuse new players in the mix, their recruitment hasn't always been spot on. And a lot of that is placing their faith in players with a very high ceiling who just didn't have the attitude to deliver. And, you know, Jordan Ibe is an example of that. Other times they've placed trust in in individuals youngsters especially who have proven to be um you know at youth level and stuff quite amazing Dominic Solanke comes to mind but just didn't perform and then Solanke you know at the at the end of the season when Bournemouth rallied he really came to the fore and got amongst the goals but they really needed him uh, to do that earlier so I think, you know, obviously injuries as well when you're a team with a squad as small as theirs and with limited resources. 
uh, that is going to to pinch you hard, especially not being without David Brooks for so long, who was their creator fulcrum. What he does next is really interesting because supporters actually want him to stay and bring Bournemouth back up to the Premier League. Whether he has the mental capacity to just, it's it's such an absorbing job and being a manager in general, but he is everything to Bournemouth. Whatever you see at that club has his fingerprints all over it and that can be quite consuming. So I wonder if he take a sabbatical of sorts just to refresh um, and then whether he goes back to Bournemouth or whether he moves on, moving on would be a challenge as well because he wouldn't have as much control as he enjoyed as Bour- at Bournemouth, as much trust in his abilities and and freedom, really. Miguel, Villa came out of nowhere and stayed up by virtue of, of all things, a goal line technology cock up in their first game back from Project Restart against Sheffield United. It was a point that ended up keeping them in the league because without it, their goal, inferior goal difference would have meant that Bournemouth would have actually stayed up. Um, with regards to you know how they approach this season, they spent 140 million last summer. What is you know how do you see things playing out for them? Do they go again? Do they you know what about Jack Grealish? What happens there? Is this do they need to reinvest? And I suppose even more so if they're getting rid of one of their prized assets. Well, I wonder now will Grealish stay um, because actually I mean the expectation all season was that Villa would go down and that they'd be forced to sell him to stay afloat. Now, I mean, they've been they've had a financial lifeline, it has to be said, really, in terms of that. Also, it probably preserves the hierarchy of the club because I think big questions would have been asked had they gone down after the recruitment charge they went on. So it really was important to them staying up. And obviously, they have that guaranteed Premier League income now. And at the same time, like Grealish, there has been a sense that he um, he hasn't really wanted to go, that he kind of wants to... He's one of those players that seems he wants to stay at Villa. He's a massive Villa fan. Uh, and a lot of the pressure to leave is almost external. Uh, I know Manchester United's interest in him has cooled partly because of Pogba and, and the fact that he's going to stay. Uh, and I don't think it's certain they'll go at all. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But they don't have the same need to sell him either, which is I think is crucial. Do you think then that he, you know, if you were a betting man, would you say that he will be a Villa, Villa next year then? Is that kind of the sense that you're getting from, I suppose, interest cooling off him through... I suppose not so much through his performances because he's been pretty good recently and also has a, has a longer body of work than, than what we've seen of him this season. But um, are you kind of go, you know, do you think he will stay put? Uh, I'd say 60 40 he'll stay. 60 40. 65 35. Fair days, fair days. Um, Melissa, just to you once again, a quick word on Southampton who looked at one point like they were dead and buried. Um, just talk to me about the scale of the work that Ralph Hattenhutel has gone through to, um, well, yeah, to, to get them in a position where they they, had, they were able to, you know, live comfortably for the last month or so. I think it's a credit to his managerial expertise. Really, there can't be a bigger question asked of a manager than what do you do when you've just been tanked nine nil at home, and Southampton at that point could have very well capitulated. The players could have dropped their heads. At that point, you know, we've seen it with so many dressing rooms, there can be that will to get rid of the manager. Instead, they responded 
in a way that now frames their season. When we talk about that 9-0 defeat by Leicester, we speak about how they reacted to it rather than the manner of, of that defeat itself, which is a credit to the manager, the players, the hierarchy for keeping um, faith in Ralph. And one of the things he did was go back to the the bravery first approach that served him so well at Leipzig. Um, and the players really bought into that, partly because it actually suits the likes of Danny Ings and Shea Adams, Jay James Ward-Prowse, they, on the ball and off the ball, have been, over the last few months, one of the best teams to watch. I've really enjoyed covering them. And I think their their comeback is really snapshotted by Danny Ings, who, you know, his personal setbacks and how he's responded to them, I think tells Southampton's tale as well. It's all It's all a really good story, but more than that, it's a credit to remarkable coaching. Right, we're going to go for a quick break now, uh, so we'll see you in a couple of moments. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast, where we're discussing the end of the Premier League season. We've chatted over the bottom of the table. What about the top, or kind of near the top, to be exact? Heading into Sunday's final day, it was two from three to make up the top four, with Manchester United and Chelsea eventually edging out Leicester City to qualify for next season's Champions League. Miguel, you're at Stamford Bridge on Sunday. What did you make of Chelsea and Lampard? And how do we assess Lampard in this first season in charge now that the dust is starting to settle? Uh, well, I think the game was actually one of their best of the season. Um, one of their best performances. I thought they were composed, hard to get at. And given that this is... I mean, what's characterised Chelsea's campaign is almost a certain chaos. And they've kind of ebbed and flowed so much. There's been some wild games. They've conceded so many. Uh, and, the, and this actually, and by keeping clean sheet in this game, it meant they didn't end up having their worst ever defensive record in the Premier League. So that's progress. Obviously, with, and also the decision to drop Kepa points to kind of maybe bigger decisions there. Uh, I think it means Lampard has done a good job uh, I wouldn't be going overboard with the praise and the way a lot of people are, uh, which certainly seems uh, with that praise apparently connected to who Lampard is as opposed to what he does. Uh, and I think it's a little bit similar with Solskjaer because really, and this season sums it up, it's very, very difficult to not qualify for the Champions League, no matter what your temporary problems, if you're one of the four richest clubs in England. Because there's, there's always a way to get around it. Look at Manchester United's case. They just went out and signed a £70 million midfielder. That's something that... Wolves, Sheffield United and Leicester can't do. And remember, they are the main competition. 
And Chelsea, for, for all the talk about the squad, and I, I mean, you'd, you'd swear he was taking over a gang of kids when he wasn't. He was, he was taking over a gang of... <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, OK, they lost Hazard, fair. But Pulisic obviously stepped... And he was a big signing before that. And it's still a very, very good squad, if with some gaps. Um, so, so I don't think it's a miracle in the way that's, ha- that's been portrayed. It was like, you know, I, ne- I, ne- I never went with those kind of expectations that Chelsea were going to finish 10th or whatever. Uh, but it's a, it's a good, solid job. I'm not going overboard. Well, like, to, to break down um, Lampard's work this season, was there anything to you that suggested that this was an opportunity being given and taken by a young, up-and-coming manager? Did you see enough? Tactically, I know he's, he's obviously, you know, he t- comes across as a very good man manager. He comes across as someone who, well, he obviously gets the press and he's obviously very popular, as you alluded to in the first bit. But, you know, from the important stuff, tactically, do you think there's enough there that suggests that he could be, well, I suppose exactly what Chelsea need next season? One thing I've thought about Lampard throughout the season is as if it's, it's almost, in terms of not so much whether he's good enough, but in terms of the development of his career and his tactical ideas and all of that, it feels like he's in that job a bit ahead of time, uh, which doesn't which doesn't mean the job is necessarily too early for him. But in the sense that it, it feels like his football idea isn't fully formed yet. And let's not forget, he's he's only been a manager for two years, uh, so that's kind of entirely natural. Uh, like it's it, he's had a shorter career than some of these young players that he's been lauded for bringing through. Um, in preparing player to manager, obviously. And so it feels like he has a broad idea of how he wants to play, but he hasn't yet fixed some of the issues within it. One of them, of course, being how susceptible they are to counterattacks. Their, their set-piece situation is remarkable. Although, to be fair, the performance against Wolves, there have been a few games like this, but usually against bigger sides, when, uh, when Lampard has impressively adapted, particularly against Manchester United in the Cup, or say Spurs in, um, in December against Mourinho. But I have to say, I was impressed against Wolves yesterday. They they looked very, very solid, very sharp, and a very kind of they looked much smarter than Chelsea have been in a lot of these games. They just weren't cut out in the same way that we've seen time and again. And it's interesting that happened with Kante, to be fair. So I would I would give Lampard credit for that. And I think that that'll be more one of the interesting elements in terms of how we'll, how we'll develop over the next season. Well, let's talk about Leicester. They were the team to just miss out in their two 0 defeat to Manchester United. Minister, you've written about them today, which you um, people listening to find on independent.co.uk. Um, what did you make of their season as a whole then? How have you assessed it in terms of, I suppose, the two halves of the regular period and then post-lockdown? I think if their halves were reversed, they'd be getting a lot of cl- acclaim for you know pushing so hard for a Champions League spot. Unfortunately for them, around November, December, they were being spoken about as title contenders. And Brendan Rodgers would be asked about it in every press conference. And he said, as long as you're still asking me that question at the business end of the season. And as it happened, they finished 37 points adrift off Liverpool. And I think the point of departure actually was the champions smashing them 4-0 at King Power Stadium on Boxing Day. I think that probably quicker than expected and more ruthlessly than expected, show them how far away they actually are. 
Uh, they have obviously not been helped with injuries to Ricardo Pereira, James Madison. They've got quite a youngish spine to that team um, that are still developing together. And so it is a good season for them to end fifth. And yet we'll always think of it as them blowing the Champions League spot because of how well they started. Um, I, I think there's a lot for them to work with, to improve on. And yet I, I don't know if they're going to get as close to the top four um, in the coming years because they will lose a lot of their best talent. And it's always going to be a case of them, you know, trying to to rejuvenate the squad while losing their best players, while trying to develop. And that's a very hard thing to do. As we've mentioned, Manchester United are back in the top four. Miguel, you've been critical of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in the past, and you're definitely not alone in that. Uh, but does he deserve credit to this upturn, especially during Project Restart? Uh, same as Lampard, isn't it? If you're at Manchester United or Chelsea, it's, it should be harder to finish outside the top four. I mean, I don't want to go all, all <laughs> Roy Keane on this. But it, 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 like, I think it's amazing how these things get spun. We shouldn't forget just how much wealth is conditioning football now. And United went and transformed their season by signing a £70 million star uh, in a way that none of their competitors could. So, I mean, yeah, I give him a certain amount of credit in terms of he's met his target. And I have to say, he's done a better job than I anticipated because uh, I was still of the opinion that Solskjaer was completely out of his depth. I wouldn't say completely out of his depth now, to be fair. He's adjusted. Uh, and and I think you have to you have to recognise and acknowledge that a lot of players do like him. So there there is something there. There might there might be some sort of Zidane quality there, where he's good at kind of um, facilitating personalities. I would be worried in the long term in terms of again his idea of football, uh, what United want to do. It still seems relatively basic and dependent on individuals stepping up, which I think is why they're a very streaky team. Um, when they're on form, they look exceptional because it's good players playing. When they're not, um, they they can look very very bad. Um, but he did take over a difficult situation, uh, and I would give him a certain amount of credit. But as with Lampard, I wouldn't be going overboard. <laughs> fair news, fair news. Um, it does seem like the players respond to him. Um, I suppose more importantly, as you mentioned there about the good players, if people like him, that's kind of translate to decent performance on the field. Bruno Fernandes has obviously been a huge part of this kind of, uh, this upturn. Um, he looked pretty shattered, to be honest, in that Leicester game. Um, what do you think is, I suppose not necessarily his next, you know, what, what he does next as a player, but do you think he's the kind of person who might have benefited from being a bit of an unknown this season and will, you know, kind of be up against it a bit more next year? Or rather later, you know, in a couple of weeks. I think with Bruno, what actually suited him is walking into a club that needed a reference point, that needed a main man, that needed someone to come in and take responsibility. And his game is is geared to that like talismanic figure. So I don't think he walks into Manchester City, for example, or Liverpool and has the same transformative effect it suited Manchester United at the time and it suited him and you know we we asked there does Solskjaer deserve credit and he does for changing the environment he came into 
a club that was quite miserable. And even during his caretaker spell in charge, just, you know, enlivened the mood. But in terms of on pitch, the biggest difference has been the Fernandez signing. He walked in and just made everybody that much better because even in training sessions and stuff, he was hot. He demanded the ball. He could do great things with the ball and he lifted all his teammates and ultimately lifted Manchester United into the Champions League spots. Next season, yeah, I don't think he gets as much time. I don't think he gets as much influence. And we saw actually in the FA Cup semi-finals, Chelsea's plan without the ball was basically to swarm him and not give him a, a chance to to affect the game and that worked for them. So what's what do you reckon United's next move is then with, with the the transfer window? And this is open to both of you. There are obviously kind of things they need to work on, specifically that defence. Um, do you think that comes from recruitment and on the subject of recruitment, is there any kind of latest on, on Jaden Sancho? But we start with you, Biggs. Yeah, I, I guess I suspect that to be done relatively quickly now. Um, United qualifying in the Champions League has been an issue with it. Madrid wants him, but don't have money to spend. Liverpool, like him, Klopp has, has spoken to him, made it clear that he wants him, but can't spend money this year. He wants to go. Obviously, United's situation has improved, and he had expected to be done fairly, maybe within the next few weeks. Melissa, what do you reckon then? Um, where else? With, with Sancho sorted, you know, going forward, United fine. Do you think there'll be anything more with regards to solidifying them at the back? They absolutely need it because that is the key area of concern at the moment. And also the key area that guarantees you titles, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson used to always say that defence wins you the league, which is something that Liverpool themselves had found out. They had, you know, a wealth of attacking talent, Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino, Mohamed Salah, but the big change happens when Virgil van Dijk and, and Alisson are recruited and then Fabinho as a defensive midfielder. So through the spine of the team, they're so strong. Um, Harry Maguire has so many mistakes in him um, and they've made it obvious that they are looking for another centre-back. David De Gea remains a, a continuous problem and one that needs proper addressing I know Solskjaer has, you know, backed him publicly, has backed him privately, but, you know, he's the world's best paid goalkeeper and he's been brilliant for United for a long time, yes, but he is undermining them moving forward um, and they've got Dean Henderson, so that's something that can be remedi- remedied quite quickly. Just to um, kind of move on to the back end of the show and look at the season as a whole, um, it's kind of, we keep mentioning it, but it's hard to get away from the fact that it's been so, so peculiar. Um, Migs, what would you remember from 2019-2020? Uh, I mean, it will be a long, long stretch of our football. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, that, that'll want to come, I mean, yeah, it'll, it'll always stand out for that, for that massive break. Um, I think the day that Project Restart started uh, will go, will end up being a date that goes down in football history. Uh, I think the Premier League do deserve credit for that uh, because there was a point when um, it looked very complicated to get back. 
that was as recently as uh, as mid May. They came back in mid June, and then of course beyond that, there's Liverpool's first title in thirty years, and the manner they won it, particularly how good they were um, up until January or up until February, really. So a season of kind of strange contrast, and I suppose that's a, that's a, I mean, and maybe that added to well, it's 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 almost such a, a kind of a, a compelling contrast there. The kind of the, the sterile games, uh, the sterile fanless games that Liverpool confirmed the title in was so strikingly different to kind of you know the packed fervent Anfield uh, in which they went on that incredible run of form. You know, just on that, do you reckon that when crowds come back, it would take that in itself will take a little bit more time to get used to? Like it'll be interesting to see how teams react from getting fans back. And do you think? this time away will change fan behaviour, per se? Because it was something that became quite a hot topic, you know, in the, at the start of the season with certain reports of people saying all sorts and being called out and stuff. Do you reckon, I'm not, you know, let's not extrapolate this to whether this pandemic is going to provide us with a kinder society, because I think we know the answer to that. But do you reckon that, you know, the way we consume football in this country will change because of what we've, what's happened over the last few months? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I, I think as with, uh, I, I think as with all these situations, once we have normality back for a, a certain amount of time, things just fall back into place. I think that happens with almost everything, to be honest. Uh, and, and I think I think it's going to be the case with this. Um, even like look at how people. I was actually thinking of this when the first game started back, and there was a, there was a lot of discussion on social media about how. For for a long time, you know, football isn't important. This is all irrelevant. Real, you know, coronavirus taught us the true meaning of the game in that sense. Then there was also, well, I'm not going to watch it. It's immoral and all this. Then as soon as it starts, the discussion on social media, say, is exactly the same. People are getting ahead up over the same issues and they're treating it, bar not being able to go to the games, they're treating football in the same way they always treated it. And I think maybe after maybe a little bit of adaptation to maybe new measures to get into stadiums and things like that, I think people will be back to normal quite quickly when it eventually happens. Yeah, fair dues, fair dues. Melissa, um, Liverpool already will obviously remember this season forever, regardless. Um, finally getting their hands on the Premier League trophy, first time in three decades. Is that your standout moment? Um, and if not, kind of what have you picked up uh, and will carry with you from this season? From a Football perspective, definitely, um, to get 99 points, but also to do it in a year where you've become the first British team to simultaneously hold um, the Champions League, the domestic title and um, Super Cup and World Club Cup is quite remarkable, really. And it's not being underscored as much, I think. Probably that's a credit to Liverpool, the fact that it seems normalised now, this kind of success for them. But as Miguel pointed out, we've lived through an age of football in a global pandemic. And I think in 30 years from now, 50 years from now, people will still be talking about this 2019-2020 season. For the sheer strangeness of it, it was definitely unprecedented. And it was so uncertain for a long time, like Miguel says, where you weren't sure whether this season was ever going to come back, whether you could really have next season following on from that. And it really trained your mind to think about football in a wider context. Obviously, we all love it. uh, We're passionate about it. We enjoy the elements of the game itself. 
but from a wider perspective, it made you think about, you know, the financial um, chaos some of these clubs put themselves in, especially when you look at the championship, the, just how unsustainable the model is. You realize how many people rely on football for income because I think when we think of the game, we tend to look at the top end, the managers, the players, you know, these multimillionaires, but at, at ground level, there's stewards and, um, you know, the, the chefs in the cafeteria and all that stuff who need money from football to have their livelihoods. And it was, I think it was an important period for those months without the game to actually think about all those other factors and there was so much talk of a reset for football, um, you know, to to sort of ensure the game is run in a healthier manner and becomes more competitive. But as Miguel has said, once normality returns, everything will just resume. The rich get richer, the big get bigger. And still, it's football and we love it because, man, those months without it were really, really <laughs> difficult. Yeah, tell me about it. Well, the fact remains is that it's going to come around pretty soon anyway. Um, Miggs, what, what do you know of uh, plans for next season to you know bring back fans? And, and I suppose how teams are, are looking to prepare for it, considering they've just come out of competitive action. Yeah, so we had a story a few weeks ago in which they were initially looking to try and do it from the very start, which is 12th of September, and now it seems it's going to be October. But some of the clubs have already been kind of tinkering with ideas about how, you know, it'd be fa- it'd be fans with at least one seat between them. Of course, that depends on the stadium size. For example, having one seat between between you is very different, say, in Craven Cottage or in Goodison Park than it is at Arsenal or at the Etihad, um, because of kind of you know the, <laughs> the what modern stadiums are like. Uh, also, apparently, one of the biggest uh, logistical challenges is supposedly that um, if you sit diagonally there's a greater chance of of, of spreading uh covid than if uh, you're sitting behind someone or in front or whatever uh, so all these things have to be thinking about and i suppose and as much as that if it is only certain capacity they have to work out some sort of fair system for what season ticket holder gets to go to what game like imagine you i mean you, 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 you can't really it'll have to come down to points or some sort of lottery or whatever because you know people you know re- royal fans could miss out on some big games in that way but then I suppose they prefer that. Or sorry, yeah, they prefer that situation to uh, to not going at all. Yeah, yeah, that is that is an interesting point actually. Um, Mel, for the from the kind of performance side of view, you know, t- obviously there's some teams who are still taking part in the Europa League and the Champions League. But where do where do teams go from here? And what what do you reckon that's? Or, or you know, what do you know of people's preparations towards next year? There obviously isn't going to be any massive pre-season tours but there will be pre-season camps in and around Europe wherever um, clubs can go and actually base themselves in terms of the air bridge obviously the organization of of a pre-season is a lot more complex now given where teams can actually fly to where they wouldn't have to isolate and isolate when they come back into the country it's also the same thing that they have to think about in terms of signings um you know bringing a player in does he have to isolate for a while where's he gone on holiday um all these things come into the equation now um but it's going to be really intensive and I think the teams that are going to be happiest 
are the ones that will feel they can carry over what they've achieved or sort of the momentum they've had or that final push into the new season because it is such a short turnaround. And actually teams that have struggled in with various things and actually on the last point, a team like Southampton, for example, I can imagine them having a really good season uh, next time around just because everything's now fallen into place in terms of their identity as a team, um, what they want from each other tactically in terms of the environment around the club, other sides that are still trying to work out exactly who they are or what they are or how they can move forward, I think might struggle a little bit. Um, Interesting to see how Manchester City get along because they've got quite the rebuild to do. And, you know, Raheem Sterling was saying next season starts now after their victory against Liverpool. And, you know, if this is how next season looks for them from that game to now it's not what Manchester City want really um so yeah I I think if we're sitting back I think the top four and stuff will probably look similar I think you'd expect Wolves again to have quite a good season Leicester maybe not as good a season as they had in the first half this time around um but the Premier League always has the ability to surprise in certain respects so can't wait to be surprised on the issue of the fans I really don't know how clubs are going to choose which ones to let in especially clubs like United and Liverpool where you know there's already such a debate amongst you know versus season ticket holders versus uh, membership um card holders and and all those things I I really really do not envy the people who have to decide which fans actually get in okay that's all we have time for this week I'm afraid I was going to say to you two that um you know enjoy your time off but we all know you're not going to get any time off with the Champions League and Europa's to go and also a small matter of the championship playoff as well Uh, but thank you to Melissa and Miguel for joining me and thanks to you at home for listening as well if you are a new listener please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast Spotify Acast or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating as well so that it helps more people find us be sure to follow Indie Sport and Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything that's going on and we'll see you next week goodbye